Happy New Year, everybody. It's now 2024, which means one thing. This year, there will be a presidential election in the United States, at least, starting with primary season. Now, a few years ago, back in 2020, we had our colleague Chuck London on the show to tell us all about how if your election involves more than two choices, such as in a primary or something like that, it is mathematically impossible to have a fair voting system. Well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> that's why we call this show Electile Dysfunction. Enjoy. From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's trying to save democracy. I'm Marco Crosser, you know Chad Silberg, and today's episode is titled Electile Dysfunction. Hey, Chad. I'm kind of proud of that title. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about voting today. Yeah, so it is election season and uh, voting is on a lot of our minds, but I, I don't think, while we might think about the candidates that we are going to mark our ballots for in the upcoming election or how we're going to vote on certain measures. I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about the voting system itself and the math behind that and what other kinds of alternative ways of expressing a collective will might be. And so we have a special guest returning champion. (laughs) Returning Professor Chuck Dunn from the math department here at Linfield University, who actually has a course on voting and voting theory and talk to us about some of the mathematical properties of different voting systems and some ways of thinking about voting. Through our conversation, it will draw out some of the strengths and shortcomings of different ways of expressing that collective will. Welcome back, Chuck. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Chad. It's nice to be back. Again, I'm the first returning guest. You are. I will always pride myself in that accomplishment. <laughs> I guess we should see how this goes. Yeah, well, um, but yeah, this hasn't aired yet, so pump the brakes a little. <laughs> <laughs> and we may actually bring you back sometime for what you actually do in math, if this goes really well. Uh, yeah, consider this your our second date. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you were telling us a little bit before we started about how voting, if we have just two options, yes or no, or candidate A, candidate B, if it's only two, that the math is pretty simple. The majority wins. Yes. So, you know, the, the way to sort of frame this, I think, is that if we have certain values that we have in terms of how a society should make a decision, like, should it be the case that if everybody prefers A over B, then A should win over B? Things like that. Mm-hmm. If we have certain things that we feel like ought to happen, and we can sort of list those out and say, okay, we want voting systems that satisfy these things. Well, if you've only got two options, then a majority win works just fine. You're going to find that that's fair in any way that you're going to go about looking at things. I mean, you might talk about like issues with minority uh, opinions and, and, and that kind of thing, but majority rules works fine for two candidates. Mm-hmm. Okay. The problem is, is once you start introducing more than two options, how does a society make a decision? And what's going to be fair? I mean, it's worth pointing out here in America, we often have just we have Democrats and Republicans. And oftentimes you think it's just a choice between two options. But even on the the full ballot, there's often what we call third party candidates. So we really do actually have more than just those two options. And if you really think about it, though, we also have the primaries, which is whittling it down so that we have ultimately two 
main contenders at the end of the election cycle. So here in America, we're, I guess, trying to to squeak through those difficulties by having a primary system. But I would argue it still kind of applies in, in some sense here, right? I mean, you well, certainly in the primary, you have multiple candidates that you can choose from. Right. And I would say this is even more general than than elections. I mean, this is like, how does a group of friends decide where to go for lunch? I mean, it's Monday. Subway. Right. I know, obviously. <laughs> but if you got Firehouse and you've got Subway and you got Sandwich Express, you got a bunch of different options and people have different preferences about those, then how do you come to a, a decision that even if you're not getting your way, that you feel like the group decision was correct? So that's the difficulty here. I mean, obviously, we can talk about presidential elections and, and all of that, too. But the not too distant past that I think can highlight some of the problems. I mean, let's yeah. start let's start with, with our method of determining uh, who wins. Let's just say who's going to win in a state for senator. I'm avoiding the presidential stuff because that gets a little bit muddied with the Electoral College. And that's a, another issue called weighted voting and, and issues of power and metrics for that, which is fascinating itself. So think about how we vote for senators, say. It's what we'd call a plurality, the plurality method. So the candidate who earns the greatest number of first place votes, say, wins. Now, I should say that when I say first place votes, we think about what you vote for whichever candidate you want to win. But internally, you might, and probably, depending on how many candidates there are, you have a ranking in your head. So the assumption for all of this is that we will know the rankings for each voter of all the candidates. Say we have that information, which is more than the information that we tend to get right now, but it's information that's out there, Mm -hmm. just not gathered usually. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what we're doing is we're, the, the model here is to take individual voters' preference ballots where the, you know, say there are four candidates, you know, I prefer A over B over C over D, okay? And we're going to assume that those preference ballots are transitive, meaning that if I prefer A over B and I prefer B over C, then I also prefer A over C. Got it. That makes sense? Yep. We're going to take all of those preference ballots from the individual voters and we're going to turn it into a societal ranking. So as a group, we prefer B over A over C over D, say. And we're going to assume that that is also transitive. We're trying to find some function that takes all of those individual voters' preference ballots and turns it into a societal ranking. Uh So the method that we use for determining like who wins for senator is plurality. Whoever gets the most number of first place votes, when we vote on our ballots, we're telling people who we feel is first place. Right. Sure. And we're not doing any other ranking. So the only information that as a voter we submit is our first choice And then everybody else is tied for second as far as the information that's available to the voting system. Right. Let's let's just for argument's sake, assume that that we actually know how you prefer the other candidates over each other. Okay. so I mean, I do have a preference, but that's not what I submitted on my ballot. Right. Okay. And so everything that I'm going to be talking about is going to assume that we have all of that information. Okay. so before we've even started here, you're sort of pointing out that our current voting system already has some issues because... We have multiple candidates and we have to choose just one out of those. And that's sort of assuming everyone else is just tied for last place. Tied for loser. Tied for loser. (laughs) (laughs) But there, so there are other techniques for getting at some of that information or? I think we maybe should explore first some of the problems with our current system. So go back to think of this as not 
too distant past, but our students weren't even born. The 92 election, we had Bush, Clinton, and Perot, okay. right? Clinton got 42%, Bush got 39%, and Perot got, uh, say, 19%-ish. All right, so who won the election? Well, Clinton won the election because he got the most number of first place votes. Let's just for argument's sake, suppose that every single Bush voter, now this is obviously a huge hypothetical, but every single Bush voter, they would have preferred Perot over Clinton, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So all the voters, we could assume that their preference ballots would have been, if we'd had the information, Bush, Perot, Clinton. Also for argument's sake, let's suppose, and this is definitely not true, that every single Perot voter preferred Bush over Clinton, okay? Mm-hmm. Their preference ballots would have been Perot, Bush, Clinton. Now, I'm not going to even worry about what the other Clinton voters' ballots look like because we have enough information here to make a, an observation that I think we would agree shouldn't be possible or, you know, a fair voting system shouldn't have this as a problem. So can you see what the problem is? Yeah, so you're saying that over half of the voters, if they had the option to somehow get this information out there, would have said, no to Clinton and given it to either one of the other two candidates. Yeah, the least preferred candidate in this scenario, as you set it up, the least preferred candidate won the election. Yes. So Clinton in that example, in my hypothetical, would have been what we call a majority loser because a majority of the people view that candidate as the worst. Hmm. Our system can have the majority loser win the election. Right. Now, it will always have a majority if there happens to be a majority winner our system will always pick that person. So that's good. But I think if we were to come up with like a list of sort of fairness criteria that somebody who is preferred the last by a majority of the people, if there is such a person, should not win the election. It's interesting to me how you can simultaneously be both. Yeah. The winner and the majority loser. Yeah. Well, it's because you don't have a majority winner. So if there's a candidate who is a majority winner, most of the time, most systems will pick that candidate to win. That's not all systems, but it is possible you can have a majority winner lose depending on what's Okay, but he was not a majority winner, but he was the plurality winner. Right, and so does the difference between majority and plurality make sense here? Yeah. So, so majority, majority is over 50% and yes. plurality is just the highest number amongst all the things. And so, right. but this happens in like primaries all the time when you have more than three candidates. So like in the primaries, if you're a candidate pulling in like 25 to 30%, you're just doing great if there are, you know, eight or nine other candidates. Yeah, right. Even though for that, yeah, remaining 70%, you might be that 70%'s last option. Right. If only we could come up with examples of that. Yeah, who's to say? (laughs) I take your point that it is weird that we have a system that the majority loser could nevertheless win the election. That doesn't seem like something we would set out to have as as a feature of our voting process. And yet, nevertheless, here we are. Are there some other ways that we can perhaps deal with that problem? With And I'm guessing we're going to create other problems in doing so. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so what are some other characteristics that we would want? That's not probably the first one that would have come to mind I mean, in terms of fairness. Some other criteria, like you'd want your voting system to be anonymous. And by anonymous, I mean that there is no particular voter whose preference ballot matters more than somebody else's. You know, like when you're teaching class, you know that your vote tends to count more than your students when in terms of like decisions that you're making in terms of the class. Should right? we have a test tomorrow? Yeah, it's a benevolent well, dictatorship. 
Yeah. And so that's the exact thing that we're trying to avoid as a dictatorship with this anonymity. You'd want the system to be neutral. So it shouldn't have a preference itself for one candidate over another. That shouldn't be sort of baked in. Mm. You'd want it to be monotone. So what that, monotone what's that mean? means that it means that if preferences of the voters think about like how they view A versus B. And so say some changes happen in terms of how people view A versus B, but the only changes are to A's benefit, say. So, you know, we have an election and say A wins over B and there's other candidates. Remember, if there's only two candidates, everything's easy peasy. Just We're just focusing on A versus B. And A is preferred over B. Maybe A doesn't win the election, but in the societal rankings, A is preferred over B. In the next election, people like A a little bit more. You know, like they've moved A up relatively. Maybe some now prefer A over B. And maybe, you know, A has just only done better. So that's what we mean by monotone. It moves in one direction. It shouldn't be then the case that now the society prefers B over A. So those are three sort of basic ones that we would want. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm trying to come up with what the scenario would look like where that would actually happen. Could happen. Yeah. Like a voting where that goes wrong. Yeah. This can happen in like instant runoffs. So in a sort of a general sense, instant runoff, say you've got a a list of candidates, say there are five candidates. What we're going to do is we're going to first eliminate the candidate with the least number of first place votes. Okay. And then we'll reorganize and we'll eliminate the next candidate with the least number of first place votes. And so what we've got is with that first person eliminated was ranked last. The next person eliminated would be second to last. And then whoever's left at the end would be you have a winner. That actually can, you can come up with examples where that one violates the monotonicity criterion. Oh, so, I mean, that is like how the Iowa caucus works, right? I think so, yeah. There are, there are lots of different systems that are sort of akin to this. Yeah, huh. I think it's amazing that you can end up with something like, how could that possibly happen? It does. Huh. You know, I know a favorite of yours, Mike, is called the board account method, right? <laughs> is that one of your favorite methods? Well, obviously, yeah. That's If I were to rank them. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel silly not having um, come with my favorite voting system <laughs> thought through. So what's the board account, Mike? Uh, what what you do favorite? is you have actually everybody list their preferences of A, B, and C. You know, I like this, then this person, then that person. And what you do is you give your first place vote gets, in this case with A, B, and C, first place gets three points. Your second place vote gets two points. Your third place vote gets one point. And then whichever candidate has the most points at the end would win, right? So if everybody votes A for number one for the top, then that's three plus three plus three on and on, however many people you have voting. And so then you you just kind of add all that up. So I like it because it what we we started out talking about is like how when we normally vote the way we normally vote is we just have the one candidate but with the border method you are literally saying these are my personal preferences and then you're you're giving some consolation prize to the second place and the third place you know you're giving them some points because they're not the absolute loser there so, so what's the drawback of that so would you agree that if there is a candidate who has won a majority of the first place votes that that candidate should win? Majority of the first place votes. Majority or plurality? Majority. Majority. Well, I would, majority. yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, duh. Right? <laughs> I mean, well, duh. <laughs> Mike's little board account method doesn't satisfy that. Or when I say doesn't satisfy, I mean that you can come up with examples where it violates that criterion. 
Mm, okay. You can come up with examples where you've got all the preference ballots. Think of it this way. I think you can imagine how you might construct such an example. Give a candidate like 51% of the first place votes and then give them last place in everybody else. And then give another candidate all of the second place votes that you just gave the first place. So 51% of the second place votes and 49% of the first place votes. So in that point scoring method, they would have a higher score. They're going to have a lot more points, especially if you've got a large number of candidates, right? I mean, the the difference between the the first place points and the the last place points is significant. And what Mike's described, he did a three, two, one. It actually can be more general than that. I mean, you could give 10 points to first place and two points to second place. And it, okay. it, it doesn't have to be any sort of point system that you do where first place gets more points than second place gets more points than third place, et cetera. It's possible to come up with things that go wrong. And so the uh, majority- Well, but I mean, when you framed it the way that you just framed it, I would like that outcome better anyway, because I, that would show that- Okay, but now you- That now the winner- you things around. Uh, Well, yeah. Now you're- Do you want to base decisions, societal decisions on a- Case by case, ad hoc method. <laughs> it's gotten us this far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, I agree, so I agree with saying, but you know, in theory, I would say somebody who's got a majority of the first place votes, that person should win. That is an easy statement to agree with theoretically. But then if you think through the consequences of it, would it perhaps actually be better for the society if we don't go by that assumption and we go by this? Like, okay, we've got candidate A who 51% are way in favor of and 49% are extremely opposed to. But we've got this other candidate who everybody is like, yeah, that person's also pretty good too. And we can all agree on that. Maybe that would actually be the better person, even though it doesn't go along with this assumption of the majority winner ought to be the winner of the election. So I like that you're bringing this up because I think it's a good opportunity to discuss the limitations of mathematics. And there are limitations, right? I mean, that question you're asking isn't a mathematical question. That's a sociological, political science kind of question, Mm. right? Like, what is better for society? Well, math, all we're doing here, all the mathematicians are doing here, and you can't blame mathematics, is trying to say, if these are the criteria that you want, then here's how to view the system that you've created Mm. with respect to criteria. It doesn't assign any value to this criterion is better than this one or, oh, well, this case, though, we don't need to worry about that case because that was obviously the better decision for society because, but you know, that's not for math to decide. Yeah. Which I like. I like being a mathematician. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're saying that your models depend on the input that you put into it. Yeah. So you're saying that society needs to decide the societal rules. But what you're telling us are these are basically the rules that society seems to want. They seem plausible, right? I mean, like we sure. could we could have arguments, really great arguments about the assumptions that we're making about fair voting systems, and that's useful. But that's not mathematics. The mathematics is how do I prove whether or not a voting system satisfies it, and is there a voting system that satisfies a given set of criteria? Interesting. Yeah, and I, as you said, I think earlier going into it, it seems reasonable to say that everybody should agree on what our operating assumptions are ahead of time rather yes. than sort of post hoc deciding, well, maybe in this case, we don't need to pay attention to that particular assumption. Right. I mean, because I was voting for candidate B anyway, and like, it's really better if I get my way, Right. I think. Right. right. You end up kind of making rationalizations, I think, for 
Right. It's okay. There's another um, thing that can go wrong with board account, Mike. And <laughs> what if you had a candidate? And, and so we can go back to the Clinton, Bush, Perot for this as well. And the plurality method. What if you had a candidate that if you were to have one-on-one pairings, you know, just face-to-face between all the different pairs that you had, that this candidate won all of its head-to-head matches? So this is like a round robin? Yeah. So say if we looked at Bush versus Perot and Bush versus Clinton and Perot versus Clinton, say we did those, and there's only three candidates there, but so maybe I shouldn't use the Bush Clinton example. Say I've, I've got some candidate, there are 10 different candidates and candidate A wins in a one-to-one matching against all of the other candidates, all the other nine candidates, A wins versus B versus C versus D, et cetera. Do you think candidate A should win the election? I mean, my knee-jerk reaction is yes, but I know that there's going to be some sort of weird consequence of that. (laughs) Well, so for example, anytime you have a majority winner, somebody who has a majority of the first place votes, they will automatically be such a candidate, right? They will have to win versus everybody else. If you have such a candidate, and again, I, I always have a difficulty with my students because they tend to try and think of examples where they know that that can go wrong and then they'll justify it not being a necessary fairness criterion because of that rather than trying to just think in terms of theoretically, do I want that to happen? Do I want a voting system to satisfy that? Because I would argue, yes, if there's somebody that everybody in a one-to-one match prefers, then that candidate should win. So you can have examples where using board account, where that goes wrong. Hmm. It can also go wrong with the uh, instant runoff too. So instant runoff Mm -hmm. can violate that. Interesting. It is, right? Yeah. So do you have other examples of voting um, well, methods? So, there's a variation on this. It's called sequential pairwise. And that sometimes happens. Like you got five candidates and first we're going to look at A versus B. And then whoever wins that will look at versus C. And whoever wins that will look at versus D. And whoever wins that will look at versus E. Now there's a huge flaw in that process, even though we sometimes use it. And that is it's going to often depend on the order in which you do the pairings, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, that that would be like a basketball tournament or something like that. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Exactly. Rather than playing the game, we just vote for who we would prefer to move on. Yeah. So it's possible that you could have just a weird matchup that people prefer this way, but it's not always the number one seed that wins. And yeah. And then you could have like a really strong candidate that loses early and is no longer in contention. Is that? Yeah. I mean, so imagine like we'll go with your sports. Um, <laughs> Sportball. If we must. So imagine that there's some team that is just a powerhouse and wins versus everybody except for this one team out there that seems to like have their method for getting under the skin of that that team and, and beats them. But they don't tend to win very much other than that. They found the Achilles heel for the powerhouse team and they can beat them. If they're obviously paired with them first, then that knocks them out. And the team that probably would have won had it been a different order of pairings, the powerhouse would have won, hmm. right? Yeah, that makes sense. So it, so the, the order in which you do them, we call it the agenda. So it depends on the agenda. And so that's that seems to be a bit of a problem, but at least it satisfies the Condorcet winner criterion. <laughs> and you can flip that around. I mean, we were talking about a majority winner criterion, a majority loser. You can do a Condorcet winner, you can do a Condorcet loser as well. Okay. Obviously, if you've got a candidate that loses all of its head-to-head matches, all of them, yeah. In the election, right? Yeah. Yeah. But our plurality method can have that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
Are there uh, nations, other democracies that employ some of these other voting methods? Like I thought like the Australia, like, Australia or France. I thought France might have ranked preference voting or something like that, but I, I don't know. Is that one of our states? Um, is it Maine? Did any of this are you? But we'll strike uh, it from the record. <laughs> I want to say that there that, that yeah, somebody is including more information than just who we vote for first. Yeah. And again, I sometimes have an issue when discussing this stuff with students because it's easy to think, well, we don't have a problem because we don't capture that information. But the information is still there. The paradox still exists, you know, whether or not you're paying attention to it or not. Mm -hmm. I do like Borda as well, Mike. I mean, like the, the example that we constructed was fairly, you know, pathological. I, I accept your apology. <laughs> <laughs> Would there the theorem, though? Say that again? We haven't talked about the big theorem, and that is Kenneth Arrow's impossibility theorem. Okay. The The sad end of this story is that there is no system that basically satisfies all your fairness criteria. Like, and there's a very small list that he, you know, you can whittle it down to just three little criteria. There is no system that can satisfy the, the three main criteria. And we've talked about some of them other than a dictatorship. Remind me, tick off those three criteria. So one that we haven't talked about is what's called universality. So this one basically says that a voting system should not place restrictions on the ballots themselves. Like it shouldn't require that A over B, or it shouldn't require any, anything other than just, it should take all ballots that are transitive. That's all it says. So can you it, explain that in slightly less smart person words so I can get it? If I've got an election with say five people, I should be able to submit any ballot I want a versus, you know, you know, A, B, C, and D and E, right? I should be able to put them in any ranking I want. And we will assume that I prefer A over B over C over D. And we can even allow for having some ties in there. It's, it shouldn't place any restrictions on that. It should accept all transitive ballots and produce transitive societal ranking. So if I rank A over B and B over C, then I prefer A over C. That's And so the point is by accepting all of those individual ballots in that format, it should produce a societal ranking that reflects that? Is that the universality thing? Yeah, well, it, it should place no restrictions on the types of ballots that we saw. That we, oh, okay, okay. We're allowing in the system. Let's take that down to a little simpler example, which is called approval voting. So approval voting basically is you could view a bunch of different people as acceptable for the job and some others as not acceptable. So you oh. just, for all the ones you find acceptable, you get to vote for as many as you want. Maybe you find them all acceptable. You vote for all of them. Your vote really isn't helping anything, but that's fine. So then- So it's a question the, of, is somebody actually qualified for this job? Exactly. The winner will be the one who is viewed qualified by the most people. So that one seems- reasonable yeah. but that um, might not necessarily be the person who is viewed to be the best by the most people that's true so you've just touched on the problem is that that one violates universality it is restricting basically the type of ballot that you can submit because what it's forcing is you to view equally the winners or the the qualifieds and the unqualifieds they're equivalent and you've allowed yourself one little greater than symbol on your preference ballot. Mm -hmm. But you've, you've got the exact issue that's that sort of goes wrong with that. And not to say that approval voting isn't personally, I think that's probably the way to go. But again, it's hard because it depends on the outcome I want. But it does seem like a way to get the largest number of constituents to have the highest degree of agreement on 
who's at least qualified or acceptable. Right. Well, I mean, that seems like if you had an early primary to kind of whittle down the ones that are just not qualified for something, is it permissible to combine these in different ways? Of course. I mean, you can create any system you want as long as you decide on the system ahead of time. That's the main thing. You don't look at the preference ballots and say, well, let's use border on this one, <laughs> right? So overall, there is one grand thing that you have to decide on the rules ahead of time and not go back after the fact. Because you, as has come up multiple times today, we can justify all sorts of weird answers right. after the fact. The next one is what we call the independence of irrelevant alternatives. If I want to know how a society views A versus B, it should only be how the individuals view A versus B. And where some other candidate or a bunch of other candidates are in the mix shouldn't matter. So for example, suppose we had an election and in that election, A wins versus B. It is higher in the rankings. Maybe it doesn't win the election, but A is higher in the rankings than B. We have a couple years later, we have a new election. Nobody changes their preferences A versus B. Every single voter still has the same preferences of A versus B. But maybe there's some other candidate that they've changed where they put some other candidate. So maybe they had it below B before and now it's between A and B or whatever. Our societal ranking of A versus B should be independent of that irrelevant alternative. Okay. You feel like that ought to be the case? It seems reasonable. But you can come up with examples that violate that. Huh. And then the last one, I think this one's pretty easy. This is is unanimity. If everybody in the society prefers A versus B, then the societal ranking should have A over B, just within the preference ballots themselves. I mean, maybe they're... Oh, ninth and tenth place, but okay. Okay, yeah. Does that seem reasonable? Yes. Okay, good. You're... (laughs) You sometimes hedge because you're like, well, I bet I can come up with a system that doesn't do that and that I feel perfectly fine with, right? Right. So there is no system that satisfies those three criteria other than a dictatorship. (laughs) Where a dictatorship is just one person votes and that one vote matters everything. That one vote, yes. So this is, you know, how we teach. (laughs) Yes. Should we have a test tomorrow? Okay, let's all vote. Vote count. (laughs) Yeah, there are 30 people in the room, and my vote counts for 31. Yes. Yeah. So that was a very depressing ending to this. We <laughs> we were hoping so, that we would get to mathematically prove that there's a way to get voter preference here today. But thank you, wait, Chuck, I, for ruining my faith in all of democracy. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's really interesting to think about how there are other ways to vote. And even though we can think about from state to state or from country to country that there are examples out there of different ways to vote, it is interesting that I tend not to think about all these different examples and the pros and the cons and, and all this other stuff. So, um, And our system, plurality, is probably one of the worst in terms of like fairness. Yeah. It's the simplest, but simple is not always best. Nevertheless, people should go vote. Well, thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me on again. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you will download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.